If you like music's greatest mysteries, you've got to check out Dan Rather's The Big Interview for some incredible true stories from the biggest names in music. Check out the podcast sometime. On this episode of Music's Greatest Mysteries, was Jimi Hendrix kidnapped? And is his manager secretly involved? I think the worst person that came into Hendrix's life was Mike Jeffrey's manager. And then, why did Slipknot take Burger King to court? Slipknot sued Burger King, and yet Burger King is ready to throw right back at them. And finally, did David Koresh's failure as a rock star lead him to his more diabolical calling? It's a fine line between rock star and cult leader. Jimi Hendrix is an idol of the counterculture movement and a guitarist for the ages. He was extravagant, he was extremely artful, and he could play the guitar like no one else. I don't think anyone has come along that has been anything like Jimi Hendrix. He was truly the greatest guitarist ever. But while Hendrix is soaring in fame and popularity, he might be trusting the wrong people. He had really crazy people around him. And the worst, in my opinion, being his manager. Did this manager possibly stage a kidnapping in 1969? And if so, does the abduction ultimately lead to Hendrix's death? By the age of 26, Seattle-born Jimi Hendrix is not only changing the landscape of American rock and roll with hit records, but he's also revolutionizing mastery of the electric guitar. He blew people's minds because he was such an incredible guitar player. He was innovative beyond belief. You ever seen a black man play a left-handed guitar like a psychedelic hippie and set fire to it on stage? <laughs> this was a look that nobody had ever seen. By 1969, Hendrix has released four studio albums, all of which go platinum. Wildly profitable, it appears that Jimi Hendrix is living the American dream. Managing this success? A man named Mike Jeffrey. Mike Jeffrey was Jimi Hendrix's manager. He kind of comes across as this kind of sleazy manager that you hear about, you know, back in the 60s, back in the 70s, that were really taking advantage of their artists. Jeffrey manages both the Animals and Hendrix simultaneously in the 60s. And Animals singer Eric Burden claims that Jeffrey is more than just a shady manager. Eric Burden of the band The Animals has gone on to say that he was one of the most horrible human beings of all time. He's also one of the master manipulators of all time. His manager, Mike Jeffrey, got him involved with uh, some weird things. That Rainbow Bridge project, which uh, is basically unwatchable. Who are you anyway? I'm the same thing that you are. I see through the form, for I created the form. In 1970, Jeffrey convinces Warner Brothers to finance a surfing version of Easy Rider called Rainbow Bridge. His collateral, Jimi Hendrix, will not only record the soundtrack for the bizarre film, but also act in the movie. But Hendrix is unaware. He's told he's going to Maui for a gig, nothing more. 
In 2020, former bassist Billy Cox is interviewed about the movie. Rainbow Bridge was Michael Jeffrey's production. I did not hear about any movie at all until we got here. And I don't know how much Jimmy knew about a movie at all. Hendrix is not only coerced into acting in the film, but his live performance is used as a part of the soundtrack. Rainbow Bridge serves as a visible example of Jeffrey's shady business practices and Hendrix's growing frustration with him. By the end of the production, Hendrix is searching for Jeffrey's replacement. Their management contract was running out, and Jimmy was looking for another manager. The story was that Jeffrey was running into some major financial problems, owed the mob a lot of money for gambling. He had all of this money shoveling into untraceable offshore accounts, and the contract was about to end. Wouldn't you want to stage something, something along the lines of, hey, listen, you really want me as a manager, and I'm going to prove it to you. According to former mobster John Roberts in his tell-all mafia memoir, Hendrix's vices potentially create an opportunity for Jeffrey to prove his loyalty. This former gangster claimed that uh, Jimmy came to a club that he owned one night and, um, and got kidnapped. It was common that Jimi Hendrix would play at this club called the South Asian in Greenwich Village, New York City. He apparently went to buy heroin at like a club. There's a couple mafia dudes in there. They snag him. He went with these two young Italian guys to this house, and word got out that they were holding him for ransom. Allegedly, Jimmy's manager, Mike Jeffrey, learned about the kidnapping. He called the owner of Salvation, who had really strong mafia ties. And they said, you better return him back to us unharmed, or else you'll die. Coming up on Music's Greatest Mysteries, is Mike Jeffrey behind this secret kidnapping? And does this event lead to Jimmy's untimely death? Mike Jeffrey might have been behind the kidnapping. And he told quite a few people that he was the one who was responsible for Jimi Hendrix's death. And later, Waco's most infamous resident lures followers into his rock and roll fantasy. When you combine three power chords, a strong backbeat, and the voice of the new messiah, that's a force to be reckoned with. In 2011, former gangster John Roberts releases a tell-all book called American Desperado. In one excerpt, he alleges that Jimi Hendrix is kidnapped and held for ransom by two mafia members, but is eventually rescued by his manager, Mike Jeffrey. The worst person that came into Hendrix's life was Mike Jeffrey's manager. So the rumors are that Mike Jeffries was probably the guy that set up the kidnapping to begin with because he wanted to prove to Jimmy that he saved his life because Jimi Hendrix was looking for a new manager. Did he do this to look like a hero? Did he have him kidnapped only to save the day and have him returned so that he could take the credit? That's the question. Unfortunately, Jimmy never has the chance to answer the question himself. Shortly thereafter, Jimmy died, although many people feel he was actually murdered. 
Supposedly, when they did an autopsy, there was more wine in his lungs than there was in his stomach. So it sounds like he was violently put to death. Like many rock stars before and after him, Jimi Hendrix's death has its own conspiracy theories. But if this kidnapping really occurs, is it possibly tied to his demise? There's some really strange things surrounding it. Mike Jeffrey knew that Jimi Hendrix wanted to fire him and find a new manager. He had just taken out a $2 million life insurance policy on Jimmy's life. That's pretty suspect. Mike Jeffrey allegedly told quite a few people that he, you know, was the one who was responsible for Jimi Hendrix's death. That's, of course, a whole other mystery. But if true, it may explain how and why Jimi Hendrix was secretly kidnapped in 1969. Sadly, we'll never know. Michael Jeffrey dies in a plane crash in 1973, while Hendrix's legend endures. I don't think anyone has been anything like Jimi Hendrix. He was a rebel and he was a brilliant musician. Jimi Hendrix was an icon. With eerie masks and an aggressive sound, Slipknot channels rage as an identity. While Burger King is seemingly the polar opposite, the quintessential American brand. So what happens when these two join forces? The first thing we have to ask ourselves is why would Slipknot be the subject of a Burger King marketing campaign? That's insane. And what happens when that relationship becomes litigious? It's 2005, and Burger King is on the verge of debuting a new, unusual product. Their marketers want fresh, original, edgy. Burger King were trying to celebrate the release of chicken fries, so they wanted to have an ad campaign featuring a rock band. The chicken fry was a hybrid of french fries and chicken nuggets, and it is exactly what it sounds like. Imagine this boardroom. There's a ton of suits sitting around figuring out how to get chicken fries out to the masses. This young 20-something strolls in and he's like, you guys got a chicken fry problem. I got the solution. Slipknot. Slipknot is a massive band at this point in time. They are drawing tens of thousands of people to their shows. They have created such a following. You really couldn't go to a mall without seeing kids in Slipknot t-shirts. Eyeing a big opportunity, Burger King makes a request to take a ride on Slipknot's coattails. They contacted Roadrunner Records. Can we possibly have them be the spokespeople for the chicken fries? Slipknot said no. They didn't want to be attached to the ad campaign. Undeterred by rejection, Burger King comes up with a new, if familiar, angle. Logically, they created their own Slipknot called Cock Rock.
they created a marketing campaign for this fake band. If you remember MySpace, it was on MySpace. They actually dropped an LP for them. In order to give you this real band, it was gonna get all the attention because people hadn't really seen this from a fast food brand before. They created a whole narrative around the cock rock band. And everybody loved it. And it paid off because they sold millions of dollars in chicken fries at their launch. But part of it was because they committed to the bit. They said, we're gonna make cock rock a thing, and they did. In the midst of its immediate success, cock rock's similarities draw attention from Slipknot. Slipknot must have thought the same thing we all thought. There's a guy in a gas mask like Slipknot. There's a guy in a kabuki mask like Slipknot. There's a guy with dreads attached to his mask like Slipknot. And so Slipknot sued Burger King. Coming up on Music's Greatest Mysteries, Burger King fights back. You'd say they had a beef, so they sue. And yet Burger King is ready to throw back at them. And later, does a madman in Waco lure cult members into his rock and roll fantasy? He's a lot like Manson. I'm going to put him in a big house and I'm going to be God. In 2005, Burger King launches a new ad campaign for their latest product, chicken fries. To champion the new dish, they reach out to hardcore band Slipknot, but they decline. So Burger King creates their own metal band called Cock Rock, and the campaign blows up, creating tensions between Slipknot and the fast food institution. Slipknot got mad because they declined the deal, and Burger King did it anyway. You'd say they had a beef that their success was being leached onto, so they sued. And yet Burger King is ready to throw back at them. Slipknot sued them for their likeness, and then Burger King countersued them and said, we got masks, you got masks, a billion other people got masks, you got no case. Burger King said, hey, you're kind of ripping off bands like Kiss and Guar, the makeup and the masks and everything. So who is Slipknot to say that Burger King is copying them and not their predecessors who Burger King alleged Slipknot copied? The headlines quickly turned on the band and uh, it became an embarrassing moment for them. Both sides dropped the suit. I guess they decided it wasn't worth their time. With the feud all but settled, who wins is still a matter of dispute. Let's face it, how far was Cock Rock really gonna go? Especially having the Burger King logo on the back of your record. Who won? That's easy, Burger King. It was one of the most successful product launches in the history of the company. They sold millions of chicken fries upon release. The chicken fry is still here today and is now beloved. Did Slipknot need Burger King? No. Slipknot's still packing arenas and everyone loves them. By the 1980s, Vernon Wayne Howell is a struggling musician with a dream quickly fading. Those who heard his music were not incredibly in love with that music. I think that's a nice way of saying it. So he rebrands himself 
as David Koresh and takes over a cult called the Branch Davidians. Oh my God, the Branch Davidians? Death, murder, killing. That's religion, that's church for Is there a correlation between these two paths? Rock star wannabe and self-anointed messiah? It's a fine line between rock star and cult leader. There's something almost like it's a superpower. And is music his tool to create believers and mold minds? By his teenage years, Vernon Howell, the man who will come to be known as David Koresh, has two passions, religion and rock music. And at the age of 22, he leaves his home in Texas and heads out to California to follow his rock and roll dreams. Koresh went out to LA to, to be a star, to be a musician, and got shut down. Los Angeles is a very unforgiving town. It's hard to get noticed because there's so many people trying to get noticed. He came back home to Texas and got turned down from Lone Star Records. So he went back with his tail between his legs. He's playing covers in the music bars in Austin. Back in Texas, Koresh marries his musical aspirations to his religious beliefs. The name of his band was Messiah. You know, he is cocky and pretentious. He wrote a song called Mad Men from Waco, which sounds like I'm making it up, but I'm not. It's just kind of crappy rock and roll with, you know, some religious sermon in there sometimes. They probably were nothing more than just a vehicle for his fantasies of megalomania. But his time as a wannabe rock star proves invaluable to Koresh's emerging career as a self-proclaimed prophet. He finds a group of willing listeners in the Branch Davidians. He put also a new song in my heart. Many shall see it and fear. He would use his songs as invocations before services and sermons. You can really sway crowds very easily with call and response. It's ritual. Christ comes again, you saw it. He's gonna bring us, and it has seven seals. Preachers and charlatans used them for good and for bad. That, I think, was the best demonstration of how it can go bad. The whole south side of the building is going up in flames here. Coming up on Music's Greatest Mysteries, David Koresh's musical aspirations turn catastrophic. When you combine three power chords, a strong backbeat, and the voice of the new messiah, that's, uh, that's a force to be reckoned with. Spring 1993. David Koresh is flamed out in Hollywood. He's now leading a different type of group, the Branch Davidians. But Koresh is not the first person to uh, lead a cult that was a failed rock star. He's a lot like Manson. They both wanted to be rock stars, but they couldn't make that happen, so they started their own group of followers out of nothing. Now Koresh, through music and mind control, is able to recruit more than 100 members into the Branch Davidian cult. He would use the music to fuel his sermons and vice versa. He probably thought, I'm going to put him in a big house and. I'm going to be God.
But then reports from former Davidians claim Koresh has been sexually abusing children and stockpiling weapons. When the ATF and FBI go to investigate, they are met with violence. At least six people, four ATF agents and two cult members lay dead. And a 51-day standoff ensues. Still no break reported tonight outside of Waco. This was on the news every single night. What will the wacko from Waco, what will he do next? Hours after Gorish said he would surrender, the waiting game goes on. Then, on April 19th, 1993, tragedy strikes. The whole south side of the building is going up in flames here. 75 members of the cult, including Koresh, perish. Leading to the question, does his failure as a rock star cause this tragedy? Any power in the wrong hands is dangerous, but when you can use a tool as powerful as music to wrap other people's minds around your agenda, yeah, you got the wrong message. When you combine three power chords, a strong backbeat, and the voice of the new messiah, that's a force to be reckoned with. the alleged kidnapping of a 60s icon, the battle between an alt-metal band and an American institution, and a musician turned madman. They're all part of music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend.